All right, let's get into the Word of God. Enough nonsense for this morning. Philippians chapter number 2, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Let's go ahead and read our text beginning in verse number 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then, of course, verse number 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Our subject is the psychology of the Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence in our service today. Lord, we need your presence. We need your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts to give us the grace to follow you and obey you. And Lord, the Spirit of God is necessary to convict souls, to lead people to Christ, and to strengthen the saints. Father, you know this congregation. You know the heart of everyone that is listening to this message. You know the heart of everyone that will, at some point in the future, hear this message. We pray for each and every heart that you would accomplish in that heart exactly what you would want to accomplish through this message. We pray for your help, your guidance, your strength, and above all, we pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would put your blessings upon our time together today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Question, would you like to smell like Jesus? I know what you're thinking. I don't know what he smelled like. Well, there is a perfume company in Orange, California that makes a fragrance that's called Virtue. It's $80 for an ounce and a half bottle, and it contains ingredients from the Holy Land in Jesus' day. Things such as apricot, pomegranate, fig, and then, of course, myrrh and frankincense. We know that from the Christmas plays. They claim that it will make you smell like Jesus. We'll keep that thought filed away as we continue into part two of the message, The Psychology of the Savior. I'd like to give you a little bit of quick review from last week's lesson where we only got to uh, really point number one, and that was we talked about tempered emotions, and all of, all of our points last week came particularly from verse number one of our text. We talked about the two biblical laws regarding emotions and feelings. Number one, feelings are deceptive. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then we saw that emotions are supposed to be led. We're not supposed to follow our heart. We're supposed to lead our heart according to the Bible. And so Hollywood has it wrong. Our culture has it wrong. Emotions are not supposed to lead us. We are supposed to lead our emotions. How do you know that, preacher? I know it from Proverbs 25, verse number 28, where Solomon said, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city 
broken down and without walls. Last week, we saw from verse number one, the process of the four C's. We saw the consolation that is in Christ. We saw the comfort of love, the companionship of the Spirit, and then, of course, that Christian charity, those bowels and mercies, the feeling of mercy and charity that comes from not only our relationship with Christ, but from the previous three C's, the comfort of love, the consolation of Christ, and certainly the companionship of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to part number two, today's message, and that is developing the mind of Christ. Roman numeral two in our message, I'd like to talk to you from verse number two about purposed unity. Now, I'm not just simply saying unity with a purpose. The world would talk about unity with a purpose, but specifically, the point is purposed unity. We hear a lot of talk today about unity. I mean, unity, 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 unity. Unity is a wonderful thing. But we need to understand that unity is not an objective. It's a byproduct. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse number 34, and I wish that the, the liberal Christian world would remember the words of Christ. He said, think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Now, if you understand the purpose, if you understand the ministry of Jesus Christ, then you know that Jesus isn't saying that this is what he wants to happen. Jesus is simply saying that, hey, I know human nature, and when I come as the truth, He said in John chapter number 3 that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Jesus knew and understood that when he is manifest to someone's heart and someone gets saved by believing on Jesus Christ, their life's going to be changed. And others in the household, others in the the social uh, fellowship are not going to appreciate the changes that have been made. And so as Christians, we need to understand that when we get saved, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to be happy that we got saved. Many will end up despising us because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that that would happen. And so Jesus is making it clear that unity is not an objective. It's a byproduct of people. You take two people, you take a hundred people. And you put them in the same room and they're all saved and they all believe the word of God is the final authority. You know what you're going to have? You're going to have a pretty high degree of unity. I'm not saying it'll be uh, perpetual. I'm not saying that there will be carbon copies. Everyone will be different. But listen, you put some people together that have put their faith and trust in Christ and believe the Bible, they may have some varying views of the Bible, but when you take people that say, hey, what I believe comes from the Word of God, personally, 
you're going to find a degree of unity that the world can't even touch. Now let's read verse number 2, where Paul says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. To be of one accord means to be in harmony. Harmony, I, I don't sing harmony, I basically just sing the words. I don't know what you'd call it. I know there's, you know, daddy sang bass, I know that much, and I know mama sang tenor. But that's about all I know about harmony in music. I know that there's soprano, and I know there's, I don't know, alto? Did I get that right? All right? There's all kinds of different parts. And I do know this, that everybody that's singing in harmony, they're not all singing the same notes. But those different notes are all blending together to create a pleasant, wonderful sound. That's what being of one accord is. We're talking about purposed unity. Purposed unity is not passive. It's not saying, I'm going to be like tofu. Anybody know what tofu is? It's where they take and they boil up bean, soybeans and they take the milk off of that and they, they boil it and curdle it until it comes out looking kind of like cheese, but it's really gushy-wishier than cheese. And you say, what does it taste like? Well, it doesn't. It's just a slimy cube of stuff that really doesn't have a whole lot of flavor. It's got some protein in it, got some minerals and vitamins and good stuff in it. But for somebody to say, oh, I hate tofu. No, you don't. You hate the texture of tofu because it doesn't have hardly any taste whatsoever. But it's really good at absorbing whatever flavors are around it. Some people think to have unity, we have to be like tofu and just be like everybody else around us. It is not passive, folks. It's not agreeing with everyone. It is never compromising, and it never prioritizes people over God. So what is it? It's simply being unselfish, objective, and maintaining prioritized principles. Prioritize principles such as truth. You know what? I will go to the wall with someone who's sincere in following truth, even though I don't see things or they don't see things the way that I see them. But if they, from the heart, say, hey, I want the truth, then you know what? I can have some peace and unity with them, even though I don't see things the way that they see them. Good people in The body of Christ have strife when they lose sight of the bigger picture. I mean, you've heard of sacred cows in the house of God, have you not? I mean, sacred cows. You know, a lot of people, when they think of church, they focus more on sentiment and nostalgia. Now, sentiment and nostalgia are not bad things. But when they conflict... When they go against the main purpose of the church, they become a bad thing. I I read a a story just the other day, just recently, uh, that talked about different churches and some of the problems and church splits that they've had. Uh, One church had a split over replacing 50-year-old hymnals with new hymnals. 
And, and the old hymnals were wore out, but there was a good faction in the church that's like, no, those hymnals, we've had those around. We don't want to replace those. Those mean something to us. Well, well I hope you can see that that nostalgia and that sentiment, that's not a bad thing until it starts conflicting with a higher principle. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we find nostalgic, but if nostalgia takes precedence over the Great Commission, the ability to reach people and to minister to people, then that nostalgia becomes selfish and it becomes divisive. We need to be able to be mature enough to recognize that, hey, it's just stuff, amen? It's just things. Do you know preachers joke about church splits over what color of toilet paper to use in the restrooms? Now, you think that's funny. Do you know that there, there is such a thing? It has literally happened. And, and, and we shake our head and go, that's ridiculous. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter what you fill in the blank with. Anything that is born of nostalgia and sentiment rather than the purpose of the body of Christ is going to turn into division. And it's unnecessary, by the way. Hey, let's talk about opinions and convictions. I think we all recognize that every one of us has been on a different journey in life. We have diverse personalities, temperaments, and perspectives. The same is true in any military regiment. You know, some of you have perhaps been in the military, and I don't know how many of you have been in actual combat. But if you've never been in combat, you've no doubt you've seen it on a Hollywood film, or you've read a book about actual military combat, I think we can all agree that every member of a squad, troop, or regiment, whatever, whatever uh, um, group that we want to talk about, they're all very different. But when they go to battle, they're able to put aside their personality and their temperaments, and they're able to come together for a common cause. The key is esprit de corps, which simply means love for one another and commitment to authority. What do they do? They obey their orders and they take care of their buddies. They take care of one another, they have each other's back, and they maintain a common purpose that we are not here for ourselves. We are here to defeat the enemy and to win the victory. Hey, if the military can do it, why cannot the body of Christ do the same? Let's talk about pride and independence. You know, we are independent Baptists. But, you know, that, that term, independent Baptist, we need to recognize the fact that what that really represents is that we are not part of any outside denomination. We have no affiliation outside of this local congregation, which, by the way, is not a negative thing. The early church had no denomination. The biblical description of a church is a local group of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so denominations are a man-made thing. I'm not saying that every denomination is wrong and that if you're part of a denomination that you're evil. I'm just simply saying that we are independent Baptists because we're not part of any outside organization. 
What they do is on them. We are accountable and responsible for how we individually and collectively as a church follow the teachings of the Bible. But we should not be so independent that we become prideful. Our pride makes us independent. Our independence puts us on an emotional island. Islands, get a load of this, islands are vulnerable and have to be defended. When's the last time you heard of a South Pacific island that was a place of great agriculture where, you know what, we've got that island and that's one of our U.S. territories because we want to grow a certain crop there to feed our people. No, we've got those islands because those help us defend. Our our military uses those strategically and when we occupy that island, we have to defend that island because we're vulnerable on all sides. Well, when we become prideful and independent in our thinking, then we place ourselves on an emotional island and the result is an excessive defensiveness of our positions and of our behavior. I want you to consider Proverbs chapter 6, verse number 6, where Solomon said, "'Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise.'" which having no guide, overseer, and ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Hey, if a bunch of bugs can do it, why can't a bunch of God's people do the same? Figuring out, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what God wants for me to do. God wants me to do something. Hey, how many times have we said from this pulpit... God doesn't expect anybody to do everything, but He expects everybody to do something. As Christians, we have a responsibility to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask yourself the question, what am I doing for Christ? If you can't fill in that blank, then you need to figure it out and get that blank filled in and then do it and invest your life into serving Jesus Christ because, after all, that's the only thing that will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else will be burned up. Hey, Joel Osteen published a book and he said, your best life now. The Bible and me take offense at that because the Bible says that our best life should be the afterlife. That's what we're living for. Hey, Colossians says, set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. It would, we would do ourselves a huge favor. We wouldn't be all stressed about the election coming up if we recognized and started living the fact that no matter what happens while we are alive here on this earth, it cannot take away our salvation. And what we are living for is that one day we're going to see our Savior and we're going to be with Him for all of eternity. You know, divisive thinking, divisive thinking says, my needs aren't being met. In Acts chapter number 6, there was murmuring going on. There was division going on because the widows and the Grecians were murmuring and saying, our needs are not being met. And you know what? They would have been a whole lot better to stop murmuring and just go to the apostles and said, hey, we got a need here. 
So they didn't use proper channels. And so now God responded to their murmuring because it was a real need. But the murmuring was so unnecessary. And so often we think in the, in the body of Christ, in church, my needs are not being met. And that's divisive thinking. Christ-like thinking says this, whose needs am I meeting? That's Christ-like thinking. Psalm 30, 133, verse number 1, the psalmist says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Folks, unity is not the objective, but it is a wonderful, enjoyable byproduct in the Christian life if we will just follow what verse number 2 says to have one mind, have the same love, and be of one accord. Purposed unity. We're doing this on purpose and for a purpose. And that brings us to verse number three through four. And number three, I want to talk about our motive and our vision. Look once again at verse number three. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Notice here that our passage says, it talks about strife and vainglory. You know, the Christian life and ministry, it's not a competition. Let me repeat, it's not a competition. I'm not just talking about one church competing against another church. I'm talking about competition no matter what your ministry is, no matter what you're doing. It's not one Christian trying to be a better Christian than someone else in the church. It's not trying to be the pillar of the church. It's not trying to have ascendancy. It's not about vain glory. Galatians chapter number 5 verse number 15 says... But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Now let me say this to you, as well as anyone that's in ministry that might listen to this message. Please listen to this. When a man ministers out of personal ambition or a desire to excel, his ministry becomes a reflection of him rather than a reflection of Christ. And by the way, I know many great men that have done great works, a lot of visible results. But when that is at the motive, the resulting satisfaction is short-lived and it is always accompanied by excessive insecurity. Do you know if whatever you do or whatever you have, if you feel down deep that your strife and your labor and your ability made it happen, then you're always going to think that it's my strife and my labor and my ability that's going to keep holding it together. And so let's do ourselves a favor and let's not let anything that we do for Christ be done through strife or vainglory. And then notice that the second part of verse number 3 and verse number 4 deals with the self-esteem issue. You know, our culture says unity, 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 but it also has instilled this concept 
that all of the evils in our society stem from people with low self-esteem. And so the school systems and universities are continually pumping in this ideology and philosophy of self-esteem. You know, our message is the psychology of the Savior. I mean, the thinking and the human nature that comes from Jesus, but yet human nature basically looks at our through life through the eyes of ego rather than through the eyes of spirituality. Look at it with me once again. It says, let each, in verse number three, second half, let each esteem other better than themselves. I'm not supposed to worry about my self-esteem. The Bible doesn't teach high self-esteem, nor does it teach low self-esteem. It teaches no self-esteem. We're not even supposed to be thinking about ourselves. We're always supposed to be thinking of others, and we're never supposed to think of ourselves as better than anyone. Not sure why it got quiet on that. Well, well, I think I'm better than some people. You know what that is? That's your flesh. And so let's face it, that that is my flesh. I'm not supposed to esteem myself as better than anyone. Now, you may be better than other people. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is a soccer mom principle here. I'm simply saying that we're not supposed to be thinking that way. We are developing the mind of Christ. A man can do the right things with the wrong motives and end up miserable. Hey, if you and I, if we don't exercise this principle of esteeming others better than ourselves, ultimately, we can have great character and we can have great self-esteem, but we'll be miserable in the process. Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1776 in the Declaration of Independence, you know this phrase, he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I like to say this morning that Jefferson's observation, and that's what this is, we hold these truths to be self-evident, his observation of self-evident truth is only partially correct. I'm not saying that he's wrong. I'm only saying that he is partially, not completely correct. Hey, it's good for government to look at human life this way, but not so much for individual happiness. Hey, the term rights. Do you know the Laodicean church? That is the, the, the self-centered, corrupt church that's going to be in existence when Jesus returns. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 3. Do you know that Laodicea simply means the people's rights? When we focus on rights, our rights conflict with our pursuit of happiness in a sin-cursed world. If we were living in a non-sin-cursed world, these rights would be perfectly effective. But the problem, if we view our pursuit of happiness as a right, eventually our pathway in our pursuit of happiness is going to cross paths with someone else's pursuit of happiness. And they're going to say, I've got the right to do this. No, I've got the right to do what I want to do. And the end result is disunity and certainly 
loss of joy, and loss of happiness. Jesus Christ never exercised a single right. Do you know that he had the right to call down legions of angels to rescue him from the cross? But he chose not to. He had many rights. He was the Messiah. He was God manifest in the flesh. He did not have to allow himself to be spit upon and cursed and mocked and beaten and hung on the cross. He didn't have to allow any of that. And you know, every now and then he would not exercise his rights, but his authority would come out. Remember there in the garden where the soldiers of the high priest, they came to arrest Jesus and he said, whom seek ye? And one of the gospel records says that all of the soldiers just fell backwards like bowling pins. I'd love to have seen that, wouldn't you? And I guarantee you, he didn't say, who do you seek? No, he just said, who are you looking for? You ever seen somebody bowling, one of these professional bowlers? You know, some of them just sling that ball down like, I mean, like just crazy, and the pins just stir up. But I have seen bowlers that they release that ball, and that ball just nice and slow, just going, just watching, and you're watching, and you watch your clock, it's about halfway there, and you think nothing's going to happen. And when it hits, those pins just go, wow, that's awesome. That's the way it was in the Garden of of Gethsemane. Jesus just spoke quietly, and all those soldiers just fell backward. But you know what? Jesus never focused on his rights. And he, you know, he, he was a man acquainted with sorrows and griefs, but you could not say about Jesus that he was unhappy. He had the abiding joy of the presence of his heavenly Father in his heart at all times. Even though his circumstances were not pleasant, Even though he bore our sorrows and our griefs, he never had sorrows and griefs of his own making. I wish I could say that, don't you? I have many sorrows and griefs, and I have things that literally haunt my conscience because of sins and mistakes that I've made in the past, but Jesus never had any of that. He didn't exercise his rights. His obedience brought eternal joy to himself you know, you, you remember what Hebrews said? That Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He was willing to set aside his rights and some immediate temporary suffering so that he could experience the eternal joy of heaven. And that's the way we ought to live our life as well. Sometimes we've got to just set aside our rights and just do what is right and obey our Heavenly Father, and it doesn't mean that life will be perfect in the here and the now, but it'll bring a lot of joy in the there and the then. In conclusion, if you look with me at verse number 5, I want to talk about uh, the right way to think. Verse number 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Back in 1924, Helen and Robert Lynn conducted the famous Middletown Research Study. 
They named this study Middletown because it was chosen, they chose a place in, uh, we know it as Muncie, Indiana, it's in the middle of the country, and it's just an average American mid-sized city. Nothing big, nothing too small, just very basic. And they asked some questions to some uh, mothers. And in this, this series of questions, the mothers from 1920s reviewed a list of qualities and selected the following three as the most important for their children to learn. These are the most important. Number one, loyalty to the church. Number two, strict obedience. Number three, good manners. Amen. The qualities that they rated the lowest were, and this is from the very lowest to the the second and third from lowest, independence, tolerance, and social mindedness. In 1978, a number of sociologists returned to Muncie, Indiana to survey a new generation of mothers. When they asked the same question, the more modern mothers selected the following three choices as the most positive traits to instill in their children. Number one, independence. Number two, tolerance. Number three, social mindedness. The qualities they rated lowest were good manners, Loyalty to the church and strict obedience. As Virginia Slim cigarettes advertised in years gone by, you've come a long way, baby. You've come a long way. Uh, According to the Word of God, we haven't come in the right direction. And so we need to understand that the problems that we face in our life and in our culture today are the byproduct of the wrong way to think. We need to develop the mind of Christ. In Colossians chapter number 2, we find some similar principles, some similar words that we read in Philippians 2, 1 through 5. Colossians 3, 12 says, "...put on therefore as the elect of God..." Holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, there's that uh, charity and feeling and emotion that we've talked about last week, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. That means putting up with each other, forgiving one another. We know what that means. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. That's good preaching, amen? And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Folks, it takes faith to change in the right direction. What kind of faith are we talking about? We're talking about faith in Christ. How many times have I counseled people with major problems only to find a well-thought-out objection to every piece of advice given? You know, doctors get a bad rap. Some of their apathy, and I've seen it, sometimes doctors just get to the point where at least they act like they don't really care, but some of their apathy is produced by prideful patients. Some people think that going to see the doctor is going to cure my problem. Hey, seeing a doctor has never helped anyone, never. 
But some people have been helped by following a physician's advice and prescription. Hey, not always. But you know what? For every time that a doctor helps someone, nobody talks about that hardly. But I guarantee you that people are helped by physicians easily nine out of ten times. But the one out of ten times we hear about that because people talk about it. And, and you know, I, I, I've had some bad experiences with physicians just like most of you have. But I don't like this mentality that just lumps all of the doctors in the same category because you know what? Doctors get frustrated because sometimes they know what people need to do, but people won't do what they say. And then they criticize the doctor. Quite a few years ago, I was counseling a couple that were on their third and fourth marriages, respectively. And you know what? Everything that I said was met with resistance and arguments. And, and I, inside I'm thinking, you're arguing like you know more about this than I do, and you're, you got seven marriages combined. And this was years ago, and last time I heard, there's two or three more to add to that count. Well, that's no surprise. That's no shock. People won't listen. If you won't change your thinking, then if things aren't going right, if you're unhappy and you're miserable, then maybe it's time to look in the mirror and say, maybe my unhappiness and discontentment and depression is because I'm looking for a placebo, a distraction, or something to mask the symptoms, and I won't let the Holy Spirit get down to the root of the problem. I want my problems to go away, but I don't want to change the way that I think. We read Colossians three twelve through 15, but, uh, excuse me, through, we read through verse 14, but I want you to see what verse number 15 says. It says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Notice that verse number 15 has the same word that we find consistently in Philippians 2, 1 through 5. Let, let, let. You don't have to produce, you don't have to change your thinking We just have to let Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit change our thinking. How do we do it? We do it by following these principles in Philippians 2, verse 1 through 5. As we close here this morning, I showed you in the beginning of our message that you can buy a bottle of virtue for $80, and you can smell like Jesus, allegedly. Or you can love Him and listen to Him and start thinking like Him, and you can do all that for free just by faith, just by surrendering, submitting, Yielding, trusting, and obeying, saying, God, I can't do it on my own. I haven't been thinking right. My thinking 
has been affected by my culture rather than by the Scripture. And Lord, I know that it's time to change. If we will develop the mind of Christ, if we will follow the psychology of the Savior, we will find joy and happiness in our life that will transcend all of our circumstances. We'll not make our life just peachy and wonderful, but it will certainly give us an inner peace and strength that will help us through it. And as we've seen already, it will pay eternal dividends if we just simply turn our hearts toward Him.